over the years of giving Dharma talks, um, people have frequently asked me if I get nervous about giving talks. And the answer is, at the beginning, really, really scared. Um, now, sometimes a little bit before I start, and it varies, it depends on the situation. But over the years, I developed this practice right before I begin to speak, where I just take some moments and go inside and um, call on presence, call on loving awareness. Okay, may it be here. May this wakefulness be brought to these moments. And then simply to make the prayer that may this be helpful. And it's not so much may, may I be helpful to you, but may this thing we're in together be part of waking up. And I find that when I say that, I feel this sense of friendliness, like here we are together, and the separate self that's worried about how she'll do kind of fades back into the background some. She's still there some. <laughs> um, what I've realized is my own kind of informal prayer or practice is very much the shape of what's described as the bodhisattva's aspiration for awakening, which has two parts. And the first part is really made these circumstances, whatever's going on, be part of awakening, serve the awakening of heart and mind. And the second part is, may this life be a benefit. And the truth is that we're all bodhisattvas, and we all have that prayer, and some kind of, we frame it differently, but each one of us longs to be awake, we really want to be present, and we want to be of benefit to others. It's part of who we are. And one of the beautiful things about retreat is that the more we wake up, the stronger the longing to wake up gets. So the only difference between one bodhisattva and the next is just how conscious we are about that aspiration, how awake we are to loving waking up. Now, there's a shadow side to having an aspiration. If we are sensing, okay, I'm an awakening being, a bodhisattva, and may um, this moment serve awakening, may this life be of benefit, it's easy for that aspiration to contract and set us up for having some ideal of how we're supposed to be in this moment, how awake we're supposed to be, and how helpful we're supposed to be in the world. Um, that's the, the shadow side, and every single one of us bring some element of that. We have this pure longing to awaken. And then we have all the judging and striving and getting discouraged and all the things that kind of swirl around it, sometimes comparing ourselves with each other. There's some competition. When I lived in the ashram, uh, we practiced Kundalini Yoga and at the solstices, we'd have uh, a yoga Olympics. 
and it was it was <laughs> it was good spirited. But um, anyway, so I, a couple of months ago, I found this. This is an article saying, "Monk gloats over yoga championship." <laughs> this is from Lhasa, Tibet. Employing the brash style that first brought him to prominence, Sri Dhananjay Vikram won the fifth international yogi competition yesterday with a world record point total of 873.6. In the first event, he attained total consciousness, TC, in just two minutes, 34 seconds, (laughs) and set the tone for the rest of the meet by repeatedly screaming out, I'm blissful, you blissful, I'm blissful, you blissful, I'm blissful. I am the serenest, Bikram shouted out to the estimated crowd of 20,000 yoga fans, vigorously pumping his fist. No one is serener than Sri Nananji Bikram. I am the greatest monk of all time. <laughs> oh, God. His nearest competitor was second place finisher and two-time champion Sri Salal the Hammer Gupta. <laughs> The heavily favored Gupta was upset after the loss. I should be able to beat that guy with one lung tied, Gupta said. (laughs) I'm beside myself right now, and I don't mean trans bodily. (laughs) I just wasn't myself today, he continued. I wasn't any self today. I was an egoless particle of the universal no soul. <laughs> now, before the but- <laughs> this is weird, right? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Do you want to hear a little more? <laughs> before the Bhutan meet, Bikram had never placed better than fourth. Many said he had forsaken rigorous training for the celebrity status accorded by his Bhutan win, endorsing Nike's new line of prayer mats. (laughs) And supposedly... (laughs) I'm not going to get through it. And and supposedly dating the Hindu goddess Shakti. (laughs) Enough. I can't remember (laughs) Anyway, if you want to check for veracity, <laughs> I'll leave this up up here for. <laughs> so, a lot of us have a um, real pleasure in the stories of real bodhisattvas. I mean, there's a real power and beauty to look into the kind of life of Gandhi. My son is reading now the autobiography of Gandhi for school, so I'm kind of dipping in with him and. It's just so beautiful, or Mother Teresa, or the Dalai Lama. And there's a common denominator that has nothing to do with looking good or proving anything. And that is that each bodhisattva that we all kind of get inspired by has realized and faced suffering with an open heart in their lives. Real suffering not lightweight stuff. There's a caring about life. 
and my favorite story about the Dalai Lama, I've told some of you on Wednesday nights, is that he once was said to have said that he wasn't sure why people liked him so much, but he figured it was probably because he cared about caring. He cared about caring. And I love that because we all know that there are a lot of times that we're not directly feeling connected, our hearts aren't like wide open and, and feeling that tenderness, but somewhere in us we care about what's going on. We want to care. So this is the source of the Bodhisattva's aspiration, this quality of caring about awakening. And clearly we all get contracted and afraid we're not doing it well enough, but it's a very powerful practice to come back as many moments as we can and just ask ourselves what really matters. And so I'd like to tonight explore these two parts of the Bodhisattva's aspiration because for so many of us it's become clearer than ever that this is what our life's about. We're living in circumstances there's always been suffering but we're more aware of it. Just as, as a people we're more aware that it's here and that we need to respond. So we want to respond with care. We want to have the courage to stay open and we want to help. So just to look a little more closely at this practice of the Bodhisattva's aspiration. I think of it um, with a metaphor in my mind, this practice that and the metaphors of ocean and waves and that when we're fully awake we're living in this ocean we, we sense our connectedness with all beings a sense of wholeness and we are including all the waves that are a part of our being but they don't define us and so we really are aware of that relationship we're not caught inside the waves we're not fighting the waves this first part of the bodhisattva's aspiration may all circumstances serve to awaken is a way of saying may whatever ways that are going on whatever weather that's here right now may this help me to remember my true nature as ocean may it point me back to what the what the waves are made of what they belong to so just to look a bit closer may all circumstances awaken it comes from this wise understanding that it's only by bringing our attention to the waves that we actually awaken our hearts. We can't very quickly go into emotion, emotions, like I'm blissful, I'm blissful, because what we're doing is shutting out the very substance of our being, the sorrows and the excitement. So it's through connecting with the waves that we discover our belonging. One of the bodhisattvas in my life is my mom. And I kind of lucked out. I have a, um, a very loving, uh, wonderful mother. And on her 70th birthday, she was, um, she was invited to be the alumni of the year at her college. She went to Barnard. 
And so one of the senior class people um, called her up and did an interview with her. And one of their questions, she she was given the award because she runs a large nonprofit service organization um, that's part of the National Council of Alcoholism. So this, uh, this student called her up and said, so what do you attribute your success to? Something like that. And my mom, without a pause, even said, oh, a lot of heavy drinking. No. <laughs> <laughs> the poor girl, she kind of stuttered. <laughs> and the truth is, uh, and my, as I say, my mom's very loving, but she drank very heavily until I was, um, so back then, when I was living at home, she was never abusive, but her love was really contorted by her shame and her insecurity. She, she just really didn't like herself. And so, of course, that made it so that we kind of had that role reversal where I became the caretaker pretty young. But when, she was, when I was about 15 or 16, she hit bottom. and. Um, you know, her suffering was big enough and there was no escapes and she lucked out and found her way to not only to AA but to some very healing friendships. And um, since then, she then, because she was so with her own suffering, she then really got involved with the field of addiction. That's how it happened. Now that's just her story or my story. We each in our lives and in the lives of people we know have seen how when we hit the really painful places, when we go through divorce or disease or mental illness, the loss of people we love, those are the times that are most trying but often are the times that most tenderize us. We open to a whole other level of who we are. Now, it doesn't happen right away. When we're first hit by things, our first tendency is to wish it away or to react. And we go through all the Kubler-Ross stages, you know, of, of fighting with our experience. But the more we practice mindfulness, the less lag time there is. And we catch on, and you've seen it here that things are difficult and all of a sudden there's this, oh, okay, so this is just one of the challenging forces, wanting, fearing. And it's at that time that we can sense our aspiration. Okay, so may this be a place of awakening. It's a huge, radical shift when we can be in the midst of what we would normally fight and instead have a prayer that this might serve awakening. And what I've found is that even if I don't really mean it all the way, like even though I really wish it would go, what was going on would go away, if I even mouth the words, like there's a little place in me that's remembering that, well, if you're not going to go away, at least wake me up, you know, <laughs> it makes a really big difference. you might take a moment just to reflect and sense in your life right now, what are the circumstances perhaps that you're going back to, perhaps that you've been touching here again and again, 
that are difficult to accept, that your reflex is to reject. And just to bring them to mind and just explore the feel and shape and taste of, of this prayer. See how sincere you can be. May this serve awakening. Now the way the circumstances serve awakening we've been describing here as really the essence of practice that we we open directly to the experiences that arise. We feel the waves and as we're feeling them we remember the ocean. We try to establish that open mindfulness. But the ones that are hardest to accept, the circumstances that are most difficult That's where it gets really interesting. You know, when they're really possessing us. And I think some of the most challenging questions you've heard here in the mornings are when someone said something like, it really feels intolerable and it won't go away. Right? And this can go on for really long periods of time. So how does the bodhisattva become available to those circumstances? How do we really allow ourselves to um, feel the waves when they feel intolerable? We've mentioned a few times, it might have been in the hall, sometimes in the groups, that in a way we're all experiencing post-traumatic stress. And for those of us that have had in our earlier life, which are a lot of us, trauma and abuse, a lot of us, it's amplified. And these are the times that it's not so easy to be the ocean and just let the waves come and go, right? This is when it gets hard. So what happens is, and there's kind of a a wonderful circle, you might think of it, of how we can open and try to remember, use pathways to remember the ocean, feel some of the waves, and let feeling the waves help us remember the ocean more and in that remembering have more room for the waves. And this is kind of um, one of the rhythms of practice. When we're really traumatized, we need to have a way of connecting with something bigger. That's the basic thing. Traumatized means contracted. It means we're very identified with a small self. We need to have some reminder of bigness, some bridge into bigness. cartoon that I saw recently of two women um, having their cocktails or their coffee or something with each other and the son of one of them, this little guy, is standing on a ladder and he's, and he's got goggles on and, a, and he's got a blowtorch and he's blowtorching into the wall, I need love. <laughs> and, the two, and one mother saying to the other, oh, he's just doing that to get attention. <laughs> I mentioned on, uh, I think on Saturday, that when the Buddha hit a wall, so to speak, really was challenged, 
he touched the ground and called on something larger. And I think we sometimes forget in this practice of presence that it's part of our practice to find our pathway to something larger. And we've mentioned here it can mean taking refuge in nature. It can mean taking refuge in the net, the the web, the beings around us, getting help. It can mean through prayer invoking a sense of God or Christ or the Beloved or Great Spirit. But we all need a pathway. I love this story. Um, Many of you probably remember, um, I think it was in Texas, a boy had that rare disease or his immune system was such that he had to live in a sterile plastic bubble. And then of course they've made a movie about it recently because a single germ an unsterilized touch could be fatal. Anyone reaching to him through the hermetically sealed opening in the bubble had to wear sterilized gloves and everything that came to him, books, food, utensils, gifts, had to be decontaminated before passing through that opening. So he was sealed off, he was isolated in a permanent quarantine. But even the airtight, sterile bubble couldn't save him. And when the boy understood that he was dying, he asked for only one thing, and that was to reach outside the bubble and touch his father. So doomed, knowing that this encounter was death itself, the boy reached out and touched his father's hand. There's a beautiful teaching in Buddhism that our fear is great, but greater yet is the truth of our connectedness. That even bigger than living and dying is the refuge of love, when we can really trust that we belong. We can handle all the waves that come through. So pain is a flag. When we, when we experience really difficult waves and get really identified and possessed, it's a flag that we need to both reach out and sense our belonging to the world and reach in and touch the place in us that's hurting. A lot of times people will come, either clients or students or friends, Um, in the midst of a lot of anguish, you know, maybe they just found out of a diagnosis or somebody in their family in really great difficulty. And I very often suggest praying. It's another way of saying taking refuge. In some way, calling out or calling on what has been forgotten. It sounds dualistic when I say, well, what's your sense of the Beloved? And the person might say, well, for me, um, the Beloved is um, Bodhisattva of compassion. For me, the Beloved is Earth, Goddess, you know, that sense of nature. And it sounds like, well, it's a small self-petitioning, something outside. But what we're really doing when we're calling on what we love, and when we're calling on loving awareness, 
is we're reaching out to what's here already, but temporarily obscured. It's a powerful path. Javis writes in a poem called Absolutely Clear. Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of God absolutely clear. I really love this poem, and I think it's because in recent years I've more and more recognized that under my grabbing onto things is kind of a running away from loneliness. And to the extent that I can stop, I even hear the words, let it cut more deep in my mind a lot. If I can stay right there and feel that wave, I realize that what I'm really longing for is to just be completely awake, present, connected this moment. But I have to let it cut real deep. So that's that circle. If I can feel the wave some, I kind of let go into prayer to kind of be held and belong to the beloved. And then that letting go allows me to open to the wave of loneliness more until finally I get to the source, which is just being in love. When we've been very hurt, very traumatized, the experience of the whole, the bigness, the ocean, is what frees us up to do the most important healing, the bringing back in and allowing the parts of our being that we've pushed away to be there. I heard a very beautiful story of healing that I wanted to share with you called Downwind from Flowers. Several years ago in Seattle, Washington, there lived a 52-year-old Tibetan refugee. Tenzin was diagnosed with lymphoma. He was admitted to the hospital and received his first dose of chemotherapy. But during the treatment, this usually gentle man became extremely angry and upset. He pulled the IV out of his arm and refused to cooperate. He shouted at the nurses and became argumentative with everyone who came near him. The doctors and nurses were baffled. When Tenzin's wife spoke to the hospital staff, she told them that Tenzin had been held as a political prisoner by the Chinese for 17 years. They killed his first wife and repeatedly tortured and brutalized him through his imprisonment. She told them that the hospital rules and regulations, coupled with the chemotherapy treatments, gave Tenzin horrible flashbacks of what he had suffered at the hands of the Chinese. I know you mean to help him, she said, but he feels tortured by your treatment. They're causing him to feel hatred inside, just like he felt towards the Chinese. He would rather die than have to live with the hatred he's now feeling. And according to our belief, it is very bad to have hatred in your heart at the time of death. So he needs to be able to pray and cleanse his heart. So the doctors discharged Tenzin and asked the hospice team to visit him in his home. 
I was the hospice nurse assigned to his care. This is written by the nurse. I called a local representative from Amnesty International for advice. He told me that the only way to heal the damage from torture is to talk it through. This person has lost his trust in humanity and feels hope is impossible. The man said, if you are to help him, you must find a way to give him hope. <coughs> but when I encouraged Tenzin to talk about his experiences, he held up his hand and stopped me. He said, I must learn to love again if I am to heal my heart. Your job is to ask me, is not to ask me questions. Your job is to teach me to love again. I took a deep breath and asked him, so how can I help you to love again? Tenzin immediately replied, sit down, drink my tea, and eat my cookies. Now, Tibetan tea is strong black tea laced with yak butter and salt. <laughs> it isn't easy to drink. That's what I did for several weeks every day. <laughs> Tenzin, his wife, and I sat together drinking tea. We also worked with his doctors to find ways to ease and treat his physical pain, but it was his spiritual pain that seemed to be lessening. Each time I arrived, Tenzin was sitting cross-legged on his bed reciting prayers from his books. As time went on, he and his wife hung more and more colorful tankas, Tibetan Buddhist banners on the walls. The room was fast becoming a beautiful religious shrine. When the spring came, I asked Tenzin what Tibetans do when they are ill in spring. He smiled brightly and said, we sit downwind from flowers. I thought he might be speaking poetically, but Tenzin's words were quite literal. He told me Tibetans sit downwind so they can be dusted with the new blossoms pollen that floats on the spring breeze. They feel this new pollen is strong medicine. At first, finding enough blossoms seemed a bit daunting. Then one of my friends suggested that Tenzin visit some of the local flower nurseries. I called the manager of one of the nurseries and explained the situation. The manager's initial response was, you want to do what? But when I explained the request, the manager agreed. So the next weekend, I picked up Tenzin and his wife and their provisions for the afternoon. Black tea, butter, salt, cups, cookies, prayer beads, and prayer books. I dropped them off at the nursery and assured them I'd return at five. <coughs> the following week, Tenzin and his wife visited another nursery. The third weekend, they went to yet another nursery. The fourth week, I began to get calls from the nurseries, inviting Tenzin and his wife to come again. <laughs> One of the managers said, oh, we've just got a new shipment of nicotinia coming in and some wonderful fuchsias and oh yes some great Daphne I know they would love the scent of that Daphne oh and I almost forgot we have some new lawn furniture that Tenzin and his wife might enjoy <laughs> later that day I got a call from a second nursery saying they had colorful wind socks that would help Tenzin predict where the wind was blowing pretty soon the nurseries were competing for Tenzin's visits people began to know and care about the Tibetan couple. The nursery employees started setting out the lawn furniture in the direction of the wind. Others would bring out fresh hot water for their tea. Some of the regular customers would leave their wagons of flowers near to the two of them. It seemed that a community was growing around Tenzin and his wife. At the end of the summer, Tenzin returned to his doctor for another CT scan to determine the extent of the spread of the cancer but the doctor could find no evidence of cancer at all. He was dumbfounded. He told Tenzin he just couldn't explain it. Tenzin lifted his finger and said, 
I know why the cancer has gone away. It could no longer live in a body that is so filled with love. When I began to feel all the compassion from the hospice people, from the nursery employees and all those people who wanted to know about me, I started to change inside. Now I feel fortunate to have had the opportunity to heal in this way. Doctor, please remember that your medicine is not the only cure. Sometimes compassion can cure cancer as well. So this isn't so much a message of getting rid of disease. I think you understand. This is a deeper kind of healing. If he had had the cancer stay and he had died, it would have been the same. His heart had healed. And what let him heal and what let him face the hatred and the pain was he felt held by a larger community, which we all need. Now, once we have established some of that openness, that container, either in a really big dramatic way like he did, or just as we sit and practice and we listen to sounds and sense the sky, as we might bring to our mind in some way taking refuge in the Buddha, we're then open to the waves that are there. And that's where our practice gets really very particular, that that quality of presence, can we just stay with this, just this moment? I had uh, a wonderful teaching from a woman who had been traumatized just in being a witness to her healing. She had, her trauma was that her daughter had been abused sexually by both her husband and her step, her, by her father and her stepfather. So when this daughter was a child, she was abused, and, the, and this woman that was traumatized didn't know about it. So she found out as an adult that her child had been abused. And of course she went through enormous amounts of rage and grief and shame and guilt. How could she have possibly been a mother not knowing, you know? And it was too much. She was, she was being tortured by it. So she went to see a Jesuit priest, an, an elder, and he listened to her story and was, was really just kind and present and quiet for a bit. And then he took her hand in his, and he made a circle right in the center of it, and he said, this is where you're living right now. And it's a place of kicking and screaming. It's a, it's a very tortured place. But you have to be feeling those things. But please remember this. And he took his big warm hand and put it over her whole hand. And he said, this is the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of mercy. And if you can remember this and have the courage to feel what you're feeling, you'll find some peace. So in the weeks that followed, the enormity was still there, but she, when she'd feel really possessed, she 
she would imagine and feel the, that big warm hand covering hers. And in some way she was sensing the possibility of mercy, of compassion. And she started coming to classes, Vipassana classes, and as she moved on in her practice, she started finding that rather than imagining that hand over hers, that when she started feeling the pain and the sorrow and the grief, she could put her own hand on her own heart. That she could actually offer that same message of the bigness, the love that's holding something smaller. And we teach this as part of uh, we meaning at retreats and in Washington, and I know here at Rock sometimes, the power of becoming the holder and the held, to feel the pain that's here, but also to, like with metta or compassion practice, offer care and touch ourselves. And you might just for a moment, if you haven't explored this, just close your eyes and see what it's like to very intentionally touch yourself tenderly. In our culture, we don't touch ourselves much. We don't know how to be really tender with ourselves emotionally and physically. What happens when you just, with your touch, and you might touch your cheek or your heart, just to offer kind of a message of tenderness just through the feeling of your touch. So this practice of being the ocean and the waves is that we can feel what's here, but also be the awareness, the compassionate space that can offer kindness, offer care. Part of it for this woman, part of what allowed her to do that was that she made a shift. When she was really feeling tortured, because she felt like she deserved these terrible feelings, she didn't quite register that this is suffering. Because there was a self-responsible. But after feeling that sense of the priest's hand on hers and being kinder towards herself, she started really getting it, that she was suffering. And I found a lot in working with my own experiences when I'm in pain, that if I can really pause and kind of just go, ouch, this really hurts. It's like unpleasant, but really getting, this is dukkha. Then I get tender. It's like it doesn't have anything to do with the self anymore. It just, it hurts, it's suffering. That's part of what allowed her to become so tender with herself. David White writes, Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning downward through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wish for something else. So this is the alchemy of transformation. We have this longing that these circumstances may awaken us, 
and the way it happens, our presence with what's here allows us to open to tenderness. So rather than being a self that's suffering and fighting what's going on, we become the holder, the one that cares. This is the Buddha's basic description of awakening and freedom, this shift in identity. Now the opening becomes more and more profound as we move to the next part of the aspiration. Mm -hmm. That we're not just the ocean holding the waves of this personal self, we're the ocean that is holding the waves of all beings, all suffering, everywhere. So we begin to widen the circle of compassion. And it's not because we're trying to be a good person. It's not because of some role of the bodhisattva. It's because we are connected. She was standing at the bottom of the Farragut North Escalator, not where beggars normally wait, a knitted wool cap listed like a beached boat on her matted hair. Oily stains puddled her overcoat. Our eyes met, but I was already being carried upward, jammed between the other commuters. At the top, I turned and took the escalator back down. As I dropped a dollar into her styrofoam cup, she looked into my face. It's you, she exclaimed and broke into a radiant, gape-toothed smile. You came back. It felt good to be remembered. The training of a bodhisattva is really a training in paying attention. So we're learning to listen and sense the suffering, the vulnerability within our own being, and be able to truly listen and sense the realness of how that is everywhere. And as we've been speaking, that wakefulness to suffering in the world has just enlarged by a lot since the 11th, that we really are getting it more, the, very, the realness of people's pain around the world. And it fades. You might have noticed how it can go from being this kind of really poignant, painful, horrible sense of how many people are in pain to a story, kind of, that's a little removed. So we can hear about cities bombed or civilians killed, and it's kind of, or even famine and floods, and there'll be tens of thousands, and it's numbers for us, and it's not so real. So a part of this practice is this willingness to let the suffering be real, be felt in a real way. And sometimes it happens. I mean, when we heard some of the stories about the phone calls, those last phone calls from people that knew they were going to die, and their message to the person they were calling had that common theme, I want you to know that I love you. And when we hear that, we can, it's so near to our hearts, that's the way we are, that's what we'd want to say, that it kind of wakes us up. Or when we see pictures of children sometimes. I know for myself when I 
see any pictures of Afghanistan, but particularly see the children and sense already the hopelessness of, you know, of their lives and now just being here and hearing those screaming jets and knowing, seeing those images of those faces of children that the amount of confusion and horror, that starts making it real. Our knowing that on September 11th, about 10,000 American children lost a parent that day. And just the sense of losing a parent and how many. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness is the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow is the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. So this is the Bodhisattva's practice, this courage to care, to, to look and see what's true and have a very inclusive kind of caring. And it's a day-to-day practice and it starts right with who's right next to us and who we see when we're at work and our children and our sisters and our brothers. It starts right here at retreat when we start looking honestly at how we regard each other and recognize how much conditioning we have. And I mentioned this a bit the other night to see certain physical appearances or ways of moving, to see age, to see a certain way of dressing, and not see behind the spacesuit to the humanness, to the, the vulnerability, and to the truth of this being that you're beholding, just like you, is afraid, cares, wants to wake up. So it's practice in seeing through, seeing what's here. When we can see deeply, we naturally care. When we can really recognize the humanness. A boy named Eddie Shell came one afternoon to play with Frank and me, and at the hour for going home, did not know how to do so. This is a malady that afflicts all children, but my mother was not so sure how she should handle it in Eddie's case. She consulted us secretly as to whether he should be asked to stay for supper. We thought not, so she hinted to him that his mother might be expecting him. He was so slow in acting upon the hint that we were all in despair and began to feel guilty because we had not pressed him to stay. 
What I remember now is Eddie standing at last on the other side of the screen door and trying to say goodbye as if he meant it. My mother said warmly, Well, Eddie, come and see us again. Whereupon he opened the door and walked in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's awe. And, And each one of us wants to belong, you know. Any eyes you look into are looking back in some way there's the, the message or what you'll see is eyes that are wanting to awaken, wanting to love, want to be loved. When we can see that, we care. When we can see in each other the truth of impermanence, that we're here for just a while, it wakes us up. Og Mandino writes, Beginning today, treat everyone you meet as if he or she were going to be dead by midnight. Extend to them all the care kindness and understanding you can muster and do so with no thought of any reward your life will never be the same again reminds me a bit of that hug that Thich Nhat Hanh teaches where as you breathe you hold the other person and mentally reflect I'm going to die and you're going to die and we just have these few precious moments together Our training is to remember what's true. To see that it, as Susan described, it's like a blink. We don't have that long. So why wait to love? Why wait to play that edge and stay present and care? When we really see what's around us, we're willing to give a lot beautiful story I heard out at Spirit Rock. An eight-year-old boy had a younger sister who was dying of leukemia. And he was told that without a blood transfusion, she would die. His parents explained to him that his blood was probably compatible with hers, and if so, he could be the blood donor. They asked him if if they could test his blood. He said, sure. So they did, and it was a good match. Then they asked if he would give his sister a pint of blood that it could be her only chance of living. He said he would have to think about it overnight. The next day, he went to his parents and said he was willing to donate the blood. So they took him to the hospital where he was put on a gurney beside his six-year-old sister. Both of them were hooked up to IVs. A nurse withdrew a pint of blood from the boy, which was then put in the girl's IV. The boy lay on his gurney in silence while the blood dripped into his sister until the doctor came over to see how he was doing. Then the boy opened his eyes and asked, how soon until I start to die? Bodhisattva training is to see where the vulnerability is and to see where the beauty is. We're seeing all that's here. When we look into another being's eyes and we see the light, the 
wanting to awaken, the wanting to know, it allows us to open in tenderness in a different way. It's both ways of loving. I think I described a few days ago that there's these different flavors, and when we experience in each other the vulnerability, we naturally get compassionate. And when we experience the beauty, it's loving kindness. And they're just different expressions of here we are together, loving. I love this um, description from children of what love is. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. (laughs) When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas. If you stop opening presents and listen, When you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. (laughs) One more. You really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. People forget. I think that's one of the most powerful and central practices as a bodhisattva, that we have these experiences of caring, and as we become more conscious and awake, we take the chance to express it, to live out of it more moments in a more honest way. Thomas Merton says that in each of us, if we could really look, we'd see the transparent divine that shines through all beings everywhere. You know, the in India, Namaste, I bow. It's so beautiful. Instead of saying, hey, how you doing? It's Namaste. <laughs> it's a real different feeling, right? And it's bowing, and the understanding is I'm bowing to the divine that lives through you. What a practice. I'm just giving you different kind of flavors of how we can move through this world and learn to look at each other and see the beauty and see the vulnerability. When we recognize the spark of God in others, we blow on it with our attention and strengthen it, no matter how deeply it has been buried or for how long. When we bless someone, we touch the unborn goodness in them and wish it well. So tonight, really, this has been kind of an exploration of how we can practice this aspiration. May all circumstances awaken. Can we find that quality of openness so we can let the waves move through us? As Hokusai says, to let life live through us. Can we look at that life and see the beauty and the vulnerability and say namaste? and bow. Let's just sit together for a few minutes.
Resting in the ocean of awareness, cradling the waves that move on the surface, feeling what's here, listening to what's here, holding with tenderness this life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.